Can you hear me? There we go. Uh, so today, we're going to talk about discipleship and talk about what it costs to be a Christian. I think one of the hardest things to find in modern Christianity is balance. Uh, balance between the extremes that you, sent, you see people go to. And to be honest, I don't even know if it's an issue anymore with just Christianity. It almost feels from any stance, whether it's a diet fad or politics or religion, we tend to veer to extremes. And it's very hard for us to find that there's actually a balance, a middle point in most things in life. For example, if you look at humanity, right? You and I are both created from the very dirt of the earth, a substance with no value, a substance that can be completely gross and ugly, but we are also made in the very image of the Almighty God. Humanity lives somewhere right in the middle of that. And we see that every day. We see in people the sin and the ugliness of the flesh that leads them to do terrible and unbelievable things. And yet at the same time, we also see every day reflections of God's beauty, God's love, God's creativity, God's humor, God's awesomeness in the people that surround us. And the same comes to Christianity. There is absolutely an element of discipline, an element of righteousness, an element of sacrifice that every Christian has to make if they choose to follow Jesus Christ. At the same time, though, there is an unbelievable reward, an unbelievable blessing, an unbelievable love and peace and awesomeness that is poured into yourself and overflows into your life all around all those people that are near you. What we tend to find a lot of times, though, is that we focus too much on one or the other, right? We, we focus so much on the sin and that we're sinners and that we're terrible and we do ugly things and we do bad things and that we need to be better and more disciplined and more righteous and more holy. You know, as, as one pastor put it, you hold them over the pit of hell so they can smell the sulfur. Or we ignore sin altogether and all we focus on is this power and majesty and awesomeness and wondrous power that is God and what he can do for our lives. Amen. And the reality is, it's kind of in the middle. It's kind of in the middle that we need to sit and we need to live our lives, understanding that, yes, it does require a lot. But it's also worth it all. Uh, one of the athletes that I've always been interested in is Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps, if you're not familiar, is an Olympic swimmer and is the most decorated Olympian of all time. He has 39 world records. He has 28 Olympic medals. He has 23 gold, 3 silver, and 2 bronze. He is by far the most decorated Olympian ever. Now, all that glory that it got him, which is millions of dollars and clothing deals and commercial deals and, and all these kind of things, what a lot of people miss is the work that went into it. For 1,800 days of his life, he never missed a day in the pool. Do you understand that? 1,800 days in a row, he was in the pool. Christmases, Thanksgivings, 
Easter's twice on his birthday. He said on his birthday because the temptation was to not do anything, he'd actually double up. His day would start at 6 a.m., would start with three hours of swim, followed by two hours of weightlifting, followed by two hours of lunch. And you go, well, two hours of lunch, that's just a break. No, the guy at one point was eating 12,000 calories a day. Because if he were to eat like a normal human being, the amount of energy he was burning a week would make him lose 10 pounds a week. So he had to fuel himself with 12,000 calories just to stay where he was. Then he would go back to the pool for another two hours. Then he would do some recovery, which was more intensive than you and I are used to. It wasn't laying on a couch. It would be things like cupping where suction cups are put all over his body to reinvigorate his blood or going into oxygenated chambers so that uh, more oxygen would flow into him or all kinds of weird and crazy things. And then he'd go to sleep because sleep was super important. About two hours a day were dedicated to family time. And this is for decades of his life. When they asked him why, he said, because I wanted to achieve things that no other human being had ever achieved. But there was a couple points in his career where he retired. Why? Because he goes, I just want to be normal. I just want to know what it's like to wake up and not spend the next four hours in a pool. I want to know what it's like to not have to stuff myself with food all day just so I don't starve. I just want to kind of be normal. But for him, he was willing to make that sacrifice of a normal life for 1,800 days in a row so that he could achieve glory like no other human being has when it came to this event. For him, that self-discipline, that sacrifice, that kind of weird lifestyle was worth it all for what waited out there for him. And I share that with you because I think that's a similar mindset that you and I have to have when it comes to Christianity. Christianity requires you and I to live differently. And not just one day a week, not two days a week, but every day. In fact, every minute, every second of our lives, we are encouraged to be different. We are encouraged to be holy, which doesn't just mean that we reflect God in holiness, but it means that you and I are set apart we are set apart for the purposes of God. Amen. So that in the way that we live, the way that we talk, the way that we entertain ourselves, the way that we do everything, what people see is you don't belong to this world, do you? You have been set apart from this world for a different purpose. Now, I'll be honest, I, I had to give myself a self-critique this week. And in fact, it's not just a self-critique. I get it from my, my father and from my wife quite a bit. I understand that my tendency as a pastor is to normally challenge you guys. I'm not really good at the uplifting messages. Even when I write an uplifting message, I tend to deliver a, come on, you can do better than that. And I'll walk down from here sometimes being like, when I wrote it, it sounded so much more inspiring than how I delivered it. But the reality for me is why I think I lean that way is so much of what Christ talked about. 
was the cost. I listen nowadays to so many pastors who preach the gospel, and I don't know where they're getting it from. We, 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 we sell Christianity as if it is this easy lifestyle. It requires minimal. All you got to do is say a prayer. All you got to do is walk an aisle. All you got to do is take a dunk in a tank, and you're good to go. And that was never Jesus. In fact, any single time you come into the Gospels and you read about someone coming to Jesus and going, how do I become a Christian? Jesus never does the ABCs. Jesus never says, well, you know what? Just close your eyes and say this prayer with me. No, every single time that happens, Jesus goes for the gut, man. He goes right at the thing that is hardest for those people. Rich guy comes to him. I've listened to the commandments. I've studied the word. I want to go to heaven. I'm ready. I've done great. Jesus goes, sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. What? You want me to what? I want you to sell everything you own and give it all away. Why does he say that? Because Jesus, being the one that made that man, being the one that knew his heart, knew that that man was willing to give him everything except for his wealth. And he knew for that man, the one obstacle, the one place he'd actually have to sacrifice in his life to follow God was for him to sacrifice his addiction to his wealth. And so Jesus said, if you want to show me that you're ready, well, then get rid of your wealth. Jesus was always hitting people with the hardest thing. Look at Matthew 16, 24. It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I understand a significance to this that's slightly more positive than what his own followers would have had on this. You and I, we look at the cross as a message of hope. Because when we hear this verse, we remember, yes, he died on that cross, but three days later he rose. For us, the cross after the resurrection took on a new meaning. And so even though we understand when we hear Jesus tell us to pick up our crosses and follow him, that that requires sacrifice, we also know there's a great reward at the end of that. When he said that to his disciples, they were going, my cross? You want me to die in the most painful, humiliating way possible, and you want me to do that every single day? Great sales pitch, Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus would have failed any sales class that you've ever taken in your entire life. Right? Jesus starts with the bad fine print and goes, forget all the sales pitch. Let's just get cut to it. Okay, you want to follow me. Forget the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, all that. You're going to every single day need to die humiliatingly and painfully to yourself. Now, if you're still interested, let's talk about the good stuff. But that's what he would lead with. That's what he would lead with. If you have your Bibles, flip with me to Luke chapter 14. Now, I'm going to stop saying if you have your Bibles. I'm going to say grab your Bibles and flip with me to Luke chapter 14. The assumption is, is you have one. If you're a visitor and you don't, in the pews in front of you are Bibles. Go ahead, grab one, open it. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take the one in the pew in front of you. As the greatest gift God has given us besides his son, we should cherish it and have one. 
In Luke chapter 14 and verse 25, I want you to just listen to some of the things that Jesus is saying about following him. It says, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, and this is a key, Jesus is very different than the modern church. The modern church sees large crowds and goes, we're doing great. This is awesome. Jesus saw large crowds and went, "Uh uh-oh, not good. Not good. Because he knew his message was countercultural. He knew his message was difficult and hard. He knew his message required people to live completely differently. So he knew if thousands were hearing it and going, this is great, they probably weren't really listening to what he was saying. He's always warned us that the path is narrow. And so he sees this large crowd, and this is what encourages him to speak this way. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up his own possessions. Is Jesus mincing words here? Is he using soft language? Now, let me give you a little insight. That word hate, it's the best English word we have for what he was saying. Hate the word he's using does not mean you despise your family, but that your love that you have for your family is of a subordinate type compared to anything else. What he's saying here is if God is not first in your life, don't follow him. He's saying even those children that you love and adore, even those parents that you honor and respect and try to make proud every day, even those people in your life who make your heart feel like it's going to explode, if you put those people above me, then turn around. Turn around. See, what Jesus was trying to get past was what has become so popular in our culture, which is just give a little bit of room for Jesus. Right? Can I just carve out a little space for Jesus to come into my life? Like, you know what, let me clear a little clutter, and I'll make a nice little corner for him, and he can come in, and, and that's where he can live. Jesus said, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in having a little piece of your life. I'm not interested in you making room for me. I don't need you doing me any favors. I'm your Lord. I'm your God. And if you want me, then you give everything to me. You give to me all that you are, and you give to me all that you have. 
And if you're not willing to do that, then just go. And the point that he makes is, is listen, it's, it's better for everybody involved. Who of you who takes on a crazy endeavor in your life doesn't first sit down and think about whether you can make it or not? Now, let's be honest. We've all done those things in our lives where we didn't calculate the cost, right? Normally turns out bad. Or, or is anybody like me? I'm the worst when it comes to doing projects at the house. I'm like, oh, that'll take two hours. Two hours max, maybe three. Six days later, I'm not even 10% of the way through. <laughs> I have this one chair in my garage that I've been trying to resurface and stain, and I'm like on my seventh attempt of it, and it's been in my garage for like three months. I had convinced myself, though, it was like a, a Saturday project. I'd be done with it real quick. Jesus' point is this is not something you enter lightly. This is something that you think about, you consider, you measure, because it's not easy. Now, to be honest, I think normally where I live is right there in that message all day, every day. Challenging you guys with that. It's where I'm comfortable and it's also what I feel like we don't see the culture do a lot. I think we're so wanting people to be part of the family that we're willing to make it sound way easier to be part of the family than it actually is. And to be honest, I think in doing that, we do a great disservice to everybody involved. I think we do a disservice to the Lord because we minimize what he is, who he is, and the impact he has on our lives. God's not a great counselor. God's not a good buddy. God's not a good friend to have in your life. He's your God. He's your Lord. He is life. And so when I just tell you, no, just carve out a little piece for him, and we'll just throw him in there, just a little bit of Jesus to fill in the gaps, that sets you up for failure. That sets you up to miss everything he's about. And at the same time, it sets up people in the wrong way because they come to Christianity with no expectation of anything awesome. They come to Christianity as if it's a philosophy and a set of rules that makes you a better version of you. Like this is some self-help psychology. And to be honest, the church leans into this all the time. Go to Lifeway. Go to Amazon and look up Christian books. And the majority of the titles are not about God, they're about you. How to have a godly diet. How to have godly finances. Seven steps to a godly marriage. Seven steps to raising your kids biblically. And don't get me wrong. In the pages of this wonderful masterpiece, there is advice and wisdom for all those things. But that is not why the book was written. This book was not delivered into your hands so that you could be a better you. This book was given to you so that you would open your eyes to the most awesome being in the universe, Almighty God. Amen. It was given to you so whether God changes a single thing about your life here on earth or not, that you would look up and realize how awesome it is that you get to talk to Him, that you get to be His child, 
that you get to every single day in the midst of all the muck and mud, talk to the Almighty and know that you are His. That's why this book was given to us. Not for you to be the best you, but for you to realize He is the Almighty God. There's two beautiful parables that Jesus gives that are short and sweet that talk about the value of the kingdom. And so I want you to go ahead and flip with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at these two parables. And as you're flipping to Matthew 13, let me, let me give you just a little context. Jesus used parables for a couple reasons. One reason was in obedience to God, knowing that there was a right time for him to die. He started toning his messages into parables so that they'd be a little bit more confusing for his enemies. He knew the Pharisees wanted him dead. And he knew the more that he talked about the kingdom, the more he talked about him being a Messiah, the more he talked about people following him, the more likely it was for them to kill him. And so by using parables, what he was able to do was tell you a message that related to your day-to-day life, but revealed a deep spiritual truth. And by using these metaphors and similes, it put his enemies in a weird position. Because how are you going to get mad at a guy for talking about seed or about finding treasure? It also did a beautiful thing in that it helped him sort through the crowd. A lot of people followed Jesus in that day, not because they cared one single thing about what he had to say. They followed him because he was the trending topic of the day. Here's this great teacher that everywhere he goes, huge crowds follow. He does amazing miracles. He sometimes feeds us. It's unbelievably entertaining. The most powerful people in the world hate his guts. Something cool is happening here. And so for a lot of people, it was the rubbernecking effect that you see on the highway every day when there's a car accident and everybody slows down. And you're sure that there must be down to one lane. Nope. The road's completely empty. But there's something interesting happening across the barrier there, so we're all going to slow down and watch because I'm intrigued by what this crowd is. And so when Jesus talked in parables... It helps sort that crowd out. Those who were there to just be entertained would be like, who is this guy, man? He's just telling stories about farmers throwing seeds somewhere. But those who were there because they realized that this was God, they were listening. They were meditating on his word. They were thinking about what he was saying, and they were realizing that there was a deeper meaning to it. The second reason he did this is that it helped you and I. You and I need to be comfortable with the fact that when we talk about God, when we're talking about the Almighty, there are some topics that our little brains struggle to understand. And so with these beautiful metaphors, we are given a way to think about cosmic truths in a way that our earthly minds can comprehend. And so in Matthew 13, Jesus isn't talking about how to get to heaven. He's not saying you can earn salvation, but he's talking about what is the worth of the kingdom. So look at what he says here. This is Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 46. 
It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. In these two parables, Jesus is trying to give us an idea of the value of the kingdom to you and I. Now again, I want to make it very clear, this is not about you and I earning salvation. What can you and I do to earn salvation? Not a single thing. You could sell every possession you've ever had in your entire life. You could save every dollar in this world. You could do every good deed in the universe, and you could still not earn heaven. Heaven is for the perfect, and the only perfect man there has ever been is Jesus Christ. And that is the only way to heaven is through that perfect man, Jesus Christ. What this is talking about, though, is what is the value of that gift of salvation that God lays at our feet and says, it's yours if you want it. It's yours if you want it. And so in the first one, he talks about this treasure. This treasure that's found, and, and let me kind of talk about it, because some people read the story and are like, that's a shady guy. Right, because let let's walk through the story, right? Guy's walking through the lands, and in a field, he stumbles across treasure. He realizes that field's not his. But he realizes that treasure is more than he could have ever dreamt of having. Knowing this, he puts the treasure back because he's not going to steal it. But he's going to see if he can purchase this land. He's going to see if he can acquire it. And he's so inspired by the treasure. He knows its value so much that he is willing to go back to all of his stuff, sell everything he has, and give all of that away for this treasure. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm going to take a crazy wager that none of us in this room would consider ourselves immensely wealthy from a material standpoint. And if we just want to use a basic definition, I think most of us, if the next paycheck didn't come, we would immediately have problems. Think about going to your house right now and selling absolutely everything. Everything. All your heirlooms, all your gifts from family members, the kid's first baby blanket, everything you have, selling all of it so that you have no possession and giving it for something else. Like, I'll be honest, even for me, like, so let's say an amount like a million dollars, right? Huge amount of money, life-changing money. If you ask me to give away every single possession I have, I'd have to think about that for a second. There's some stuff I have that has different meaning than, than, than money. I have to think about that for a second. Now, let's be honest. There's probably a dollar amount that would change the game, right? Like $100 million, I'd probably be a little bit easier to go, yeah, you know what, I'll remember that. Let's take a picture of it. <laughs> this man, this treasure he finds, it is so immensely valuable, he doesn't even think about giving everything he has for it. 
Now, for any of you that have questions about the morality, remember a couple things. Back then, you didn't really have banks. So the common practice of the people was you would take your wealth and you would bury it in the ground. And often, people didn't even know what money was on their own ground. Because the generations of people who had lived there before you may have buried things. And so this man gives an opportunity to the owner of the field to claim this if it's his. Because clearly, right, if the man who owned the field already had put that money there, he goes, sure, I'll sell it to you, but I need to collect my belongings first. This guy goes and sells everything to acquire that treasure. God is encouraging you and me to see that's what it's like when we truly see who Jesus is. It's not to say that whatever you had before was not of any value. It's just in comparison to the kingdom? No. There's a second part to this parable he gives, another analogy to it. And he says this, if we continue on, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Back then, pearls were like diamonds. There was literally no more valuable jewel than a pearl. And what Jesus is painting the picture here is of a wholesaler, a guy whose whole life was finding pearls and selling them. That was how he made a living. But one day he encounters a pearl of such beauty of such value that he's willing to throw the whole business away, throw every possession he's ever had away to acquire that one thing. And God says, that's what the kingdom's like. And so there's three big things I I, I want you to think about in terms of this. One, what Jesus is trying to tell you and me is, yes, the kingdom comes at a high cost. Notice, right, in neither one of these stories does the guy just add the treasure to what he already has. Right, in the first one, he doesn't come to the field, find the treasure, and go, this is awesome, and walk away with the treasure. And everything he had before. No, he has to choose. He has to choose. Do I want this that I found now, this new thing, this awesome and wonderful and beautiful thing, or do I want what I've had? can't have both. If I want this, i got to let that go. And what God shows to us is, is, yes, that cost is high, but each time you don't sense that there's a dilemma for these people. You don't sense that they're sitting there going, well, let's make a pros and cons list here. No, they understand that the cost is unbelievably high, but the value is more. The second thing he shows us is the kingdom must be sought. Right? Both these people had to look for the treasure. Right? In one, the treasure is hidden. In the other, you have a merchant who is seeking and finding. And the point of that is, is that, brothers and sisters, the beauty of the kingdom is hidden in this world that we live in. And man, is it hidden well. I mean, if you didn't come to church or listen to Caleb, 
how often would the world point you to the value of the kingdom? When's the last time you watched a television show with a good Christian character on it that loved and glorified God? I can't really remember. In fact, I get really nervous whenever there's a pastor shows up in a television show because I'm like, oh, no, that's probably the bad guy. They're probably a drug addict, an alcoholic, cheating on their wife, a swindler, don't believe, something. They're probably the worst person on the show. It's probably what's going to happen. And almost nine out of ten times, that's exactly how it goes. I can't remember the last time I saw a show glorify God. Or a show that even showed somebody who was glorifying God and said, hey, maybe we don't agree with them, but we respect them. I don't remember that. And, and besides even directly reflecting how awesome God is, when's the last time you saw us even promote the values of Christianity? I mean, don't get me wrong, I love this country. I fly an American flag at our house. On the 4th, I was red, white, and blue from head to toe. My father has served this nation. I work at a company that focuses on honoring those who have served our nation. But let's be real, a lot about the American dream is not actually biblical. That you can be anything you want to be? Not really. That you should pursue wealth? That the key to success is having money? Not really. You don't go to school and learn that you should find what God has made you for. You don't go to school and learn that your goal should be to be a servant of the kingdom. Our music, our television, our entertainment sure doesn't point us that way. So little points to him. And so if you and I are truly going to be disciples, and if we're truly going to help others do that, we have to realize we've got to go after it. We've got to seek it. We've got to clear the mud, we've got to clear the muck, and we've got to look. I always tell you guys, do not be people who go with the flow. The flow of this world will never lead you to the throne. Never. There has to be an intention behind it. But the third point is the one I actually hope you'll, you'll love the most. And that is, is that the kingdom is absolutely worth it. The kingdom is absolutely worth it. Justin, will you move forward for me? All these people give up everything they have, but the story tells it in a way that you could just imagine them running to do it. Right? When that guy finds that treasure and realizes it could be his, you don't get the sense that he drags his feet back home. You don't get the sense that he sits there going, oh my gosh, all that I'm going to have to give up. You get the sense that he ran home as fast as he could, that he liquidated every asset he had as fast as he could. And he bought that land with no regret, no remorse. And when it was his, there was nothing but joy 
in his heart. That's the sense that Jesus is giving us. I think you and I, we tend to focus on the cost instead of focusing on the kingdom. Instead of focusing on what God gives us in return. And what Jesus wants his people to be is a people that, yes, are willing to run through a brick wall for him. But they weirdly do it with a smile on their face. Because it's unbelievably joyous. And I'll be real, brothers and sisters. I'm going to step on your toes because that's just what I do. I want us to be a more joyous people. We were talking about this on Wednesday at prayer meeting, which, by the way, you guys should come to. Come on, people. And we were talking about how often it is you show up to a prayer meeting and it turns into this weird, depressing thing of everybody just talking about all the worst things that are happening in their lives. This person's sick. This person died. I'm having financial troubles. I'm having marital troubles. I'm struggling with my children. I'm struggling with this person at work. I can't find a job. My car broke. And it's like all this terrible stuff. And I'm not saying none of that's real. All that's real. And we should bring every single sorrow we have to the throne of God and lay them at God's feet. But isn't it weird that as the children of God who know an unlimited, overflowing, abundant, perfect love, as children of the Almighty who every single day get to talk to the creator of the universe, as a people who have been given a purpose and a passion that is not about the temporary of this earth, but about the eternity of this universe, as a people who have seen through all the lies, know the truth, and get to be co-workers with God, Isn't it weird that the first things off our lips are all the things that are wrong? Why is it I've never been to a prayer meeting where I couldn't get everybody to shut up about how awesome life was? Why is it that I never have to cut off the praise time? Go, hey guys, it's enough praise. Let's get to some of the stuff you guys need God to help you with. Shouldn't we be sitting here with so many awesome, wonderful, amazing things that God gives us every single day that we almost have to be reminded of the pain? That we almost have to be reminded of the hurt? Because our eyes are so intently upon him that how can I say anything negative when he's right here with me? It reminds me, have you ever done like a terrible job but you did it with the right people? and you ended up having a blast? Have you ever done that? One of, one of the worst jobs I had is I, I, I Teflon-coated waffle irons. I know, don't, I'll give you more details later if you want. But I worked in basically a room that was an oven. So it was like 180 degrees, and we'd spend half the time in there and half out, so you'd pop in and out. And it was full of hanging metal irons that also got to that temperature. So you would regularly, if you weren't careful, burn yourself. And then you were wearing a face mask, which, you know, just was always so pleasant. But I worked with this guy that I, we just had so much fun. 
And so even though it was probably the worst work environment that I've ever been in in my entire life, every day I was like, this is fun. I'm having a blast. I've had great days digging trenches with my brothers. Because I've kind of learned if I'm with my two brothers, uh, it doesn't really matter what we're doing. We're probably going to have fun. And that's what God wants you to see. Right? Remember Psalm 23, even if you're in the valley of the shadow of death, but if you're with your shepherd, the one with the rod and the staff that comforts you, the one who prepares a table in the presence of your enemies, the one who anoints your head with oil, what are you complaining about? Nothing, because you're focused on him. Remember the kingdom that he has given us. This is the kingdom, right? He talks about the spirit, the spirit that's been put in you. Not a spirit that's next to you. Not a spirit that's in the church. The spirit that's in you. You, every single day of your life, every second. The spirit of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, of faithfulness, of gentleness, of self-control. That's in you every single second. How awesome. How amazing. To all of a sudden have the ability to do things that you could never do before on your own. But there God is, filling your cup over and over again. We're talking about that verse where it says, He restores my soul. Brothers and sisters, how many times have you been at that point where you thought you were done? Like you just thought it was over. Like I don't know how to go forward from here. And now you sit months out from that going, I almost forgot about that. That's right. Why? Because God shows up in those moments and he pours his abundance into you. He overflows your cup and he leads you out of that darkness. And he does it over and over and over and over again. How beautiful is that? How awesome is that? Don't let Satan pull your eyes away from every single time he's done that so that you're just focusing on the mess around you today. Don't let him do that. You remember Peter walking on that water? Why? Because his eyes are locked on Christ. He's not looking at the water. He's not paying attention to the wind. He's not paying attention to the waves. He's not paying attention to the rain. He is locked on his Lord. And in that moment, he does something no other human being has ever done. It is only when Satan pulls his eyes away and he sees everything around him, not his Lord, that then he starts to sink. You've been given something beautiful. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a one-time hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? To obtain an inheritance, which is what? Imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade, it is reserved in heaven for you. How awesome is that? This gift he gives you, it's not a one-time thing. 
It's not a gift that's beautiful when you first get it and then it fades over time. Right? Have any of you ever had that, right? You have that beautiful thing you get and it looks really great for like three days and then all of a sudden it starts getting scratches and it starts wearing out and it doesn't look so good? And you're like, what happened? I kind of have that feeling when I look in the mirror in the morning. What happened? <laughs> how, did, how did we get here? <laughs> You never have that with what God gives. In fact, the beauty only seems to increase. It never fades away. It never perishes. It never leaves you. And so, brothers and sisters, what my hope for you is, is that that treasure will motivate you. It will motivate you like Paul talks about in Philippians. It says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. What's he saying? I gladly give up all that. I gladly give up everything that was before to have what is now with Christ. And though he has given me this gift, though he has washed away my sins, though he has covered me with righteousness, I do not sit here cherishing that gift as a spectator. No, because that gift that I could have never earned has been given to me. Every day I run. Every day I run to be worthy of what has been given to me. Every day I go at it with all I've got. Not because I'm worried about the cost. Not because I'm afraid of the pain. But because I am so passionate about what has been given me. I don't do this out of fear. I do this out of love. I don't do this out of worry. I do this out of joy. That's what the people of God are supposed to look like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for a gift that there is no words to contain its beauty. That you have washed away our sins. That you've taken the shame and the guilt and the dirtiness of every single one of our sins and wiped it away. That you, Father, have covered us with the righteousness and the glory of your Son, Jesus. So that no longer does this world just see us, it sees Him. Perfect, holy, loving, King of kings, Prince of peace. That you, Father, have raised us up from your enemies and have made us your children. And that, Father, you have come to lowly us. And you allow us every single day to be part of your kingdom. To work for your kingdom. And to share your glory. What a gift, Lord. What an amazing and awesome gift. Father, I pray our eyes will be locked upon it. That nothing of the circumstances of this world will pull our eyes away. And that, Father, inside of us will be a joy that consumes us all. 
Father, we love you. We cherish you. And in the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask Brother Joe to come forward and uh, Brother Matt to be out there in the back. And while Maria is singing, if there is anything on your heart that you just want to know that somebody else is praying for, feel free to come forward. Um, as always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during service, please seek us out afterwards. Call us, text us, stop by, whatever. We are always here to pray with you and to help you along this journey. Maria? Let's all stand, please.
filled with wonder, struck wonder at the mention of your name. Jesus, your name is power, breath and living water, such a marvelous mystery. people said. That song always gets me. I always, I'm always ready to jump in too early, and then when it's over, I always forget that it's actually over, so sorry for that hesitation there. Um, remember, today is our celebration social, where we celebrate birthdays and anniversaries, which means instead of jumping to a, a good meal of proteins and vegetables and fruits, we're going to jump right into cake and punch. So um, if you'd like to partake in that, uh, the fellowship hall is right through this hallway down here. You can also check out the awesome VBS decorations Sandra has put together for us. Uh, so if you can stay for that, awesome. If not, remember a couple things. Remember that as a Christian, you have the spirit of God in you, which means you have a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. It means you're dangerous. Amen. Say, I'm dangerous. I'm dangerous. That was not convincing, people. I'm dangerous. Come on, let me hear it. I'm dangerous. Okay, we'll, we'll work on that. Your intimidation skills are weak. But okay, I guess that's good. If you guys are good at intimidating, I'd be worried. Um, and you have a mission. It's to go outside those walls, and it's to make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. So do not let this week just pass you by. Use every gift he gives you, every opportunity to fulfill that mission. God bless you. I love you. I hope you have a great week. Amen.